Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. I hope you've been enjoying Dr. Newfeld's series on Romans as much as I have this week. I pray that it has challenged you and been helpful to you in your journey. Today, we'll continue with Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, and talk more in depth about the known truths of God. Open your Bibles with me, would you, to Romans chapter 1, and let's join Dr. Newfeld. When writing the Roman Christians and explaining the basics of the gospel, Paul already sensed our objections. That's because we know where he is going. He is going to, as some Bible teachers put it, make sin appear exceedingly sinful, make our condition seem so bleak and so hopeless that we will have no other alternative but to fly to the cross. But here is the objection Paul already knows we will have. What about those who have never heard? And what about those who were never raised with a sense of sin, or of a righteous God, or of the graciousness of the God who would send His Son to die on the cross for our sins? If God is angry at the unrighteousness of men, how can they ever know that? And if they don't know who God is and what God demands of us, how can they be expected to pay a penalty for a sin they are not aware of? So if God is righteous, He has no business punishing people who don't know. And so in Romans 1, 19 to 23, Paul answers that. What he says here has been called by many Bible teachers natural theology. Let's say for a moment that you had never read a Bible, never been to church, never heard the name of Jesus, had no access to the teachings of Scripture. Are there some things about God you would still know? And Paul's answer is yes. And then he tells us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, let's examine the six self-evident truths that leave the human heart without excuse. Here now is the first. God exists. What may be known about God is plain. Hear me. I don't have to prove that God exists any more than I have to prove that the universe exists. Many of you know the story of Helen Keller. As a baby, a disease left her without hearing, sight, or speech. She became like an animal, completely unaware of the external world. But a young Christian woman, Annie Sullivan, took on the formidable task of teaching her to listen and to speak by making signs on her hands. When Annie began to tell Helen Keller about God, Helen answered using signs on the hand that she had already knew about him. She just didn't know his name. Well, why? Because the knowledge of God was imprinted in her makeup. It was essential to her humanity. Hear me again. The reason why human beings are incurably religious is because we are created to know God and interact with God. I've spoken with many people who came out of communist China with its state-sanctioned atheism taught in the public schools who told me I always knew on the inside that there was a God. Years ago, I had a friend who's an atheist, and he was also a high school science teacher. He told me that when you ask a group of 10-year-olds if they believe in God, almost all of them will. But by the time of grade 12, after subjecting them to evolutionary theory, many do not. I saw it immediately. 
We have to train people to deny God, but intuitively they believe. Ah, but I could almost hear the objection. Yes, we may believe in God as children, even as we believe in monsters and fairies and Santa Claus. But wait a minute. Is that a fair comparison? In his excellent book, The Case for the Creator, author Lee Strobel interviewed Robin Collins. He's a scientist and a philosopher and a noted author. Collins points out that the physical laws that govern the universe unexpectedly, in his words, conspire in an extraordinary way to make the universe inhabitable for life. He says the entire universe is finely tuned on a razor's edge, he says, in a way that defies mere chance. He gives a number of examples to make his point. The first deals with gravity. Gravity as a force, says Collins, could have been set over a wide range of possibilities. It didn't have to be set where it is. In fact, if you could imagine a ruler stretched across the known universe, and by the way, that would be quite a ruler, and then you break that long ruler into one-inch increments, and that each one-inch increment represents the range of possibilities of where gravity as a physical force could be set. If you moved gravity from what it is over even by one setting, one inch on a ruler stretching across the length of the universe, then all life would be impossible. See, the same is true of other physical laws. Consider something called the cosmological constant. This refers to the energy density of space. It also is set extremely precisely, so much so that if we're not tuned to one unit per 100 million, billion, 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 there would be no sun and no stars. The same could be said of the nuclear force that binds atoms together. If they were not tuned precisely the way they are, all we would have was hydrogen. Now, says Collins. Imagine you enter a room, a biosphere with livable conditions on an uninhabitable planet in which there are more than 30 dials on a wall and each one requires the same kind of precise setting that we have just described. And if any one of these settings were off even the slightest degree, life would not exist. What would we then conclude? See, this has led former atheist Richard Glynn to write, Today the concrete data point strongly in the direction of the God hypothesis. Those who wish to oppose it have no testable theory to marshal. Only speculations of unseen parallel universes spun from fertile imaginations. Ironically, the picture of the universe given to us by the most advanced science is closer in spirit to the vision presented in the book of Genesis than anything offered by the science since Copernicus. The only way around the obvious is to actually train someone to disregard that which is visible to all who look. The hand of intelligent design is ever-present. For when there is design, there indeed is a designer. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul says what can be known about God is plain from the existence of the universe itself. The unfathomable possibility that this is random can be ignored or it can be acknowledged, but the evidence simply will not go away. That is the first most obvious self-evident truth, God exists. Now, the first self-evident truth, the truth that leaves us without excuse, is how we know that God exists. Here's the second. This God is the infinite, uncreated creator. Verse 20 reads, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. 
What Paul wants to say is that not only is there an intuitive sense that God exists and that this intuitive sense is corroborated by nature itself, but that God's attributes, that is, his nature, is understood by all. His power, his wisdom, his knowledge, his ability to create, all this gives a sense of splendor beyond compare. All you need is a sense of the grandeur of creation to get a slight sense of the grandeur of the Creator. We should have an inner awareness that our imaginations should be stunned, overwhelmed, amazed, and staggered by this true God. And this leads us to the third self-evident truth, the truth that everyone has. We owe our existence to the Creator. This naturally follows. Since God created the universe, He created us. We exist at His pleasure. If the world was made by Him, and we know we depend upon the created universe for our moment-by-moment existence, including every breath that we take, the food we consume, and all the other natural resources that come from the earth that give us life, then we must conclude that if the Creator did not fashion a world precisely as He did, we would not exist. And therefore, we existed in the first place because he made and designed us, and we continue to exist because of his permission. Now, of course, we are aware that our Bible speaks this way. Colossians 1.15 says that it was by Christ that all things were created. Then two verses later, it adds, in him all things hold together. And the idea behind that is that Christ, the great creator, is not only the creator, but the sustainer of the universe. If he did not, moment by moment, hold the universe together, it would simply cease to exist. God exists of necessity. The creation, however, does not. Yes, the Bible says that. But we may not know God's name outside the Bible. But what we intuitively already know are these three truths. We know that God exists. We know, secondly, that this God is the infinite, uncreated creator. And we know, thirdly, that we owe our existence to the creator. That's what we know intuitively. That's what every single human being has grasped. When we come back, we're going to see where this knowledge leaves us. How can we be sure that people know about God? Well, Paul begins to list some reasons that even people who never read the Bible or never attended church would know about him. Hearing this from Dr. Neufeld reminds me, however, that as followers of Jesus, we can't use these truths as an excuse not to actively share the gospel with others. In fact, hearing that people know so little about God should only energize us to want to go out and share the gospel even more. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will continue to share three more truths with us. I hope you're enjoying today's program. You know, we have some exciting news coming up for you on our 2015 Israel Experience, taking place this October 30th to November 9th. This will be a transformational trip and the experience of a lifetime. For more information on our ministry programs or how you can register for these ministry events, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's rejoin Dr. Neufeld as he continues his series in Romans called The Heart of the Gospel. Okay, three truths. God exists, He is Creator, and we exist through Him. Here now is truth number four. We owe him an infinite debt of gratitude. Listen to verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
In other words, the response of thankfulness, gratefulness, even worship, is another self-evident truth every human has. Why? Everything we have comes from God. I remember a conversation with a man some time ago, and he told me he works hard for everything and doesn't need to thank God or anyone else for what he has. Using a a few expletives, he told me the only person he had to thank was himself. I find this amazing. It belies all rational truth. Who gives the body we have? Who gives us health? Who gives us the intellect to make money? Did we create this economy or was living in this part of the world with its peace, security, and potential to build wealth? And with the amazing natural resources we have, was this our doing? All we need to do is to think but for a moment, and we will see that the hardest effort we have ever put into something is a gift. And furthermore, the greatest accomplishment we have ever achieved is also a gift. You see, we know by nature that we owe God an infinite debt of worship, adoration, obedience, a debt of overwhelming gratitude. And that leads to the fifth self-evident truth. We are self-absorbed, ungrateful complainers. Let's remember verse 21 again. For although they knew God, that is, they knew of his existence and his kindness in their lives, expressed in his care for them, here now is the quote, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Let me put it another way. All of us intuitively know, Christians and non-Christians alike, that our gratefulness to God has not been in keeping with his kindness. By the way, as we get into this passage further, we're going to notice a list of sins, and they include every form of human evil. But, and if you miss this, you'll miss much of this chapter, the foundational sin, the one from which every other thing flows, is the sin of refusing to be thankful, refusing to fall before our Creator God and confessing that we owe Him thanks for all that we have. It was the French philosopher Blaise Pascal who noticed something universal about all human beings. We universally complain. In fact, I've noticed more. I've noticed how naturally human beings use profanity. One of the things that surprised me to no end is how many people place profanity into a sentence when they're not even particularly angry or upset. It just becomes a way of speaking. And then ask yourself, why is it that in our profanity and cursing, how often is it that we use God in our cursing? Imagine the following scenario. You're trapped in a burning building and someone rushes in to drag you out and saves your life. Now let's imagine you never say thank you or when you do. It is restrained, not heartfelt. It's casually said. It's an insult to the one who saved you. And then to make matters worse, on occasion, when you're particularly upset, you use the name of your savior from the burning building as a curse word as the way to really express your displeasure. How do you feel about that? Is that the kind of behavior that we would not all condemn? Yes, it is. And everyone intuitively knows that the level of gratefulness we should exhibit is in direct relationship to the kindness we have received. We all intuitively believe that ingrates are guilty and to be held with disgust. So let's review. First, we intuitively know that God exists. Second, we also know that he is the ultimate explanation for all that is. Third, we know that our very existence depends on him. And so forth, we know that we owe to God an eternal debt of gratitude. But we're also aware that fifth, our gratitude to God has not been in keeping with his kindness. And so this leads to our sixth and last self-evident truth. We know that because we are guilty of profound ungratefulness, we ought to seek forgiveness and hope for mercy. 
Now, from nature itself, or as we've said, intuitively, we would not know if God were merciful or harsh. I might look out at nature and see a marvelous symmetry and see how all of creation is being sustained. I might also look at my lot in life and notice how much worse it could be for me than I'm experiencing and come to the conclusion that the God who exists must be merciful. But if I care to admit it, I might come to the opposite conclusion. I can see that everyone and everything dies. I can see storms and natural disasters and diseases. I see a cruelty and a harshness to nature that is genuinely frightful. I might conclude that God does not provide mercy. I might think the situation is such that God is simply withdrawn from the human race and let us suffer or that he is actively causing us even to suffer. And having said that, I would still have to conclude that I should find out for sure if it were possible to know if mercy were to be obtained. I wouldn't know where to go for it, but I should find it if it were possible to know if it could be found. There should be a restless search in all of us for an answer to this question. Will God be merciful to me? See, I want to stop here for just a moment. What I've just been giving you are the six points of what has been called natural theology. That is to say, if you never had a Bible and never heard about Jesus and never encountered another believer, you would know this. And as we have noted, these six things are self-evident. Everyone you know knows this by nature. However, and this is the tragedy, natural theology does not bring us to God. Paul never mentions these universal truths that all people intuitively know as a hopeful sign, perhaps leading some people to turn to God. In fact, the only reason Paul mentions this is to make it plain that none of us can stand before God in the last day and say, I had no knowledge of sin. I can't be held guilty, for you have not told me anything. Instead, Paul says that the very universe is declaring this to us. Psalm 19, verse 2 and 3 says of the universe, Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. I'm not unaware of how many people have taken issue with the line of argument that we are presenting here. There are many people who argue that people don't have this awareness at all. Ask people if that's the conclusion they come to, and they will almost always say, no, we don't. But that's just the point of the passage. Paul says that which is universally self-evident is also in the same way universally suppressed. We make our living by denying what is staring us in the face. We, if you will, take this truth, gag it and bag it, and put it into the deepest hole of our personality and deny it was ever there in the first place. So you hear what Paul says. Natural theology is not another way to get to heaven. It only declares our guilt. That's why the gospel has to be preached. Natural theology says we're not seekers of God. We're suppressors of truth. So where does that leave us? As we're going to see as we continue to go through this series, it leaves our thinking becoming disconnected from reality. It leads us down a long pathway into moral darkness. And there's a picture that the Bible is painting for us. It wants us to see that things are genuinely as bad as we might possibly think. I want us to see that this picture should always be leading us to the cross of Christ as the only hope. I want you to join me with prayer here at the end. And uh, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, would you join me in this prayer? Lord God, there are things that you have revealed to me by nature. 
and I have not taken notice, that which has been staring in my face has not even been interesting to me. And I recognize now how desperate my condition is before you. Oh God, I pray in Jesus' name, would you take away my sins? Show me how you have done all that needs to be done for my forgiveness in the cross of your Son. Oh Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. John, that's a challenging message, uh, you know, because we all know people who would deny the existence of God, and some aggressively so. So how would you introduce the conversation to those people in our lives? That's uh, not an easy question to answer because all of us know people like that, and most of those conversations get to be quite bombastic. I mean, we've almost been in uh, shouting matches with people, I think we all have, and we know that nothing good can be attained through that kind of a conversation. But if things get rational or things get um, meaningful, there's a, a real relationship that's developed between two people. You'll remember I had said in my message, I had a very good friend for many years who was an atheist, and indeed he was a very good friend. Uh, we would often speak about God, and we would disagree. I pray even now for him. I know he's still alive. Uh, it's been a lot of years ago, but I pray that God might still yet reveal himself to him. I think in the end of the day, it has to require a spiritual awakening. The Holy Spirit has to do something in the heart. I am convinced that atheism in the end will never be an intellectual thing. It will be a heart matter. People just don't want to have to deal with a God who governs their lives. It's an emotional response. And somewhere in the middle of all that, I think what we have to do is, is understand how difficult it is to surrender our lives to Christ. So whether or not a person is just a garden variety sinner who doesn't know Christ, or whether they're a hardened over atheist, I think the methodology is the same. Yeah, you know, I would imagine, too, there has to be something about them actually seeing Christ in you. There's an approach that we need to take, not a bombastic approach, not a, a judgmental approach, but there has to be some way to bring people into safe conversation about something that they're so aggressively against. Well, that's a great insight. Um, you know, we, we always want to stress friendship evangelism. I, I, my concern about friendship evangelism is sometimes there's only friendship and it never gets to evangelism. But having said that, I think the alternative is worse. Uh, never establishing a relationship with someone makes it incredibly hard for someone to hear that God loves them. So I think uh, relationship is at the center of everything. As people watch us pray and as they watch us uh, genuinely thankful, as they watch us being honest and confessing our own sins to them, as well as to God. I think they're gonna see there's an authenticity to our faith that looks awfully attractive. And may God direct us in those relationships. Thanks, John. I hope you've been challenged and encouraged by Dr. Neufeld's series on Romans, The Heart of the Gospel. This week so far, we focused on some heavy topics like righteousness, and the anger of God, and most importantly, why we so desperately need a Savior in our lives. Would you join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld concludes the second week of Romans, teaching on the descent of man. This fall, we want to invite you on an unforgettable Israel experience. Touch, see, and experience the journeys of Paul and David. Walk where Jesus walked. Visit the Jordan. Sail the Sea of Galilee. Worship at the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden Tomb. When you visit Israel, you'll never be the same. 
The Israel Experience takes place from October 30th to November 9th, 2015. Make plans to join us on this incredible experience. Visit us online at backtothebible.ca to find out more, or to book your trip today, call 1-877-277-2122. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.